Coming up on today's show, Alberta struggles to get a hold of the COVID-19 situation. More restrictions on the way from the Premier. We'll hear from an ER doc fresh off her shift. We'll also chat with the Western Economic Solutions Task Force. We'll have a panel discussion and talk about space. The healthcare system, the healthcare system, we have to protect the healthcare system. What is going on with our healthcare system? We know it's stressed. There's no doubt. We've seen the numbers. The numbers in terms of hospitalizations and ICUs are higher right now than they have ever been during the pandemic. So uh, we're actually going to get about as current an update as you can possibly get right now as to what is going on in Alberta hospitals. Joining us, we have Dr. Shazma Mathani, who is an ER doctor at the Royal Alexandra Hospital and the Stollery Children's Hospital. Uh, in Edmonton. Doctor, thanks so much for taking some time to join us this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Shay, for having me. Now, you're coming to this interview straight from an overnight shift at the hospital, right? That's correct. So you'll have to forgive me if I stumble on my words at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> we appreciate tired. you doing this. Um, but So you can give us a complete, uh, you know, up to the second picture of what is going on. We, we know the healthcare system is stressed. Just give us an example. What are you seeing in the hospitals you're working in as, as recently as last night? Yeah, so our ICU is is just filled to the brim um, at my hospital right now. Uh, it's kind of spread throughout multiple parts of the hospital, um, and it, it's in overflow already. Uh, and then the department that I work in, the emergency department, um, we had a struggle last night just getting patients to move through the department because we were so bed-blocked um, with people, lots of people being admitted to hospital and waiting to move upstairs, and so that um, really affects the flow of patients through the department. Now, we keep hearing about the ICU and you know, you're expanding and you're moving into other areas and there's this many beds available. Beds isn't really the issue, right? I mean, you can go to an Ikea and buy a bed this afternoon, but you need people to staff the bed, right? That's exactly right. I mean, even with the field hospitals that we were kind of looking at in the second wave, right? So we had the equipment, we had the space, but if we don't have the specialized personnel to staff those beds, the beds are meaningless. So you, And even with the ventilators, for example, right, we could mm-hmm. have hundreds of ventilators, but if we don't have the respiratory therapists to um, to work those ventilators, to adjust them as necessary, then they're meaningless. And so really it comes down to um, human resources and, and healthcare personnel. Yeah, exactly. So as you were saying, you know, it's taking a long time to find spaces to put people as they come through the ER and things like that. But that is still happening, right? There, I mean, the system is still functioning, uh, although it's under a tremendous amount of stress right now. It is functioning. It's certainly not functioning as efficiently as it could be uh, right now, but yes, it is still functioning. With the trend we've seen over the last two weeks, last month, last six weeks, um, you know, where do you expect things might be tomorrow or next week or the week after that? In terms of the hospitals? Yeah, just in terms of, you know, we're seeing more and more people ending up in hospital. How much longer can this go on? Yeah, I mean, really, I don't think it can go on much longer when we have now multiple days in a row of more than 2,000 cases a day. I mean, every time I see that number, the case numbers, to me, in my mind, it immediately translates to, okay, well, about one or two weeks from now, we're going to see these people or a percentage of these patients in hospital, right? And so if we continue on the trend that we are right now, it's going to be a matter of a a week or two, two weeks, maybe three weeks at the most before we really are out of space, out of, out of ICU beds in particular that are quite stressed right now. Yeah, and that's that lagging indicator we keep hearing about. And the Premier talked about that yesterday, you know, with the cases that we're seeing, and like you say, 2,400, 2,000, whatever it is, you know, you can do the math because we've seen this before. You can calculate how many of those people in 10 days or two weeks are going to end up in your hospital, right? I mean, that's just math. It's, it's inescapable. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. And if we keep trending this way, we, we can't avoid the onslaught of patients that are going to have to come into hospital. Yeah, no way around it. Uh, yesterday on the show, I mentioned the fact that um, we're seeing an increasing number of children getting sick during this third wave. And a lot of people got very upset with me saying, oh, they may be cases. Children may be cases, but they're not getting sick. They're not ending up in hospital. Uh, you spend time at the Stollery Children's Hospital in the ER there. Are children getting sick? Are children being hospitalized more than they were the last time? Absolutely, yes. So we were lucky with the wild-type COVID uh, in wave one and wave two, um, where thankfully children were not getting as sick um, as adults were. Uh, This time with B117 in particular, it seems to be affecting children uh, more than the wild-type was. So we are seeing uh, you know, young children that are coming into hospital that are needing to be admitted, and then yeah, teenagers that are having to be admitted to ICU. And so this is much, much different than the previous wave. When we talk about kids, are we talking about like 20 to 30, or are we talking about smaller children here, you know, like 0 to 15 kind of a thing? Yeah, so when I when I think of children, I guess I think of under the age of 18. Okay. Um, and so in the teenage cohort, it's kind of where I my colleagues and I are seeing um patients getting much sicker, like requiring ICU care. Uh, And then in the small, like kind of under 10 is where we're not thankfully seeing as many needing to go to ICU, but definitely needing to come in for hospitalization. Um, One thing I wanted to ask you about, and I think, you know, a lot of people get their hair on fire when they hear about this. To me, it's probably just really prudent planning and hopefully we don't get there, but the triage protocol. I know Alberta Mm -hmm. Health Services has been talking to to people like you about this situation and ICU docs and things like that. Um, Just tell us what that is and, you know, is it really that alarming to to bring this out or is that just smart planning? We hope we don't get there. Um, I would say it's both. So um, essentially what the triage protocol is, is it's a way to ration ICU beds when we don't have enough to serve Albertans. And so if we're in a situation where you know, there's one bed left in the province or, you know, a couple of beds left in the province, but we have five people that need ICU beds. It's a protocol that essentially allows us to um, go through multiple factors to decide who would be the two that would be best served by getting those two hospital beds or Mm -hmm. those two ICU beds. The problem is that there are then people who need ICU beds who won't have access to them anymore. And those patients may actually die from that, right? If you're needing an ICU bed, it means that you need to be kept alive by some pretty complex medical care. Um, and so by not having that, it, it essentially means that these patients are going to have very bad outcomes and likely die. Um, and yes, it's smart planning. It's important for us to, um, to be prepared for this. But the, the frustrating and disappointing part is that this is probably something that could have been avoided. Yeah, and when we talk about these ICU beds, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about COVID, but this impacts, I mean, we use ICU beds to, you know, very high capacity when we don't have a pandemic going, right? So this affects healthcare in many other ways. You know, car accidents, strokes, heart attacks, all these things require ICU and uh, they're going to suffer as well. Yeah, and that's exactly, that's a great point to bring up because a lot of people, um, when they hear the capacity and they hear about these triaging protocols, they think that it only applies to COVID patients. This broadly, the triaging protocol is for anybody that needs an ICU bed. And in general, I mean, if our hospital capacity, whether it's hospital 
ward beds or ICU beds is at capacity. Anyone that comes in that needs to be admitted is going to be affected by it, no matter what medical condition they have. So it could be a, you know, a young person that unfortunately gets into a car accident yeah. or has an appendicitis or a broken bone, a stroke or a heart attack. All of those things are going to be affected by not having hospital capacity. Uh, last one before I let you get some rest here. Um, we know that uh, we're seeing the cases around 2000 right now. We know those will ultimately end up in the hospital, you know, two weeks, 10 days. We need to stop this now, right? I mean, if we see these cases continue, this plateau at this level, we know the outcome is inevitable. Absolutely. We need to stop this now in a big way. And the only way to do that, I know people don't want to hear this and I don't want to have to say it, but we need very, very strong restrictions yesterday in order to stop this from happening. Doctor, I really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Great insight. And uh, we'll do this again and get an update. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Shay. You bet. Thank you. That is Dr. Shazma Mathani, who is an ER doctor at the Royal Alex and at the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton. Now, she came off shift uh, this morning. She's worked night shifts uh, the past two nights, overnights, in those hospitals. And um, I, I don't understand um, why her, I don't know, testimony, her evidence, her first-person account of what have is going on in the hospital is received the way it is by some of our listeners. Not all of you. Not all of you. Um, This listener, Lauren, says, it's chilling to hear our brave frontline professionals tell us the truth concerning how close our hospitals will be to overwhelmed. It doesn't sound like we're far from Sophie's choice. We're not. My heart goes out to those that have to make those decisions in triage. Troy says, hi, Shay, I wonder what facts your caller the other day, the male who went on about AHS numbers are generally inflated, would have to counter this ER physician's opinion. I'm sure he's got some that he found online to buttress his point of view. They don't even have to go online, Troy. They really don't. Um, John says, how many children have died? Zero. Seems like the death rate is the same. Um, This listener says... Uh, you guys have yet to be right on your math. Another listener, yay, more ER Dr. Doomsday stories. I just can't get enough. Um, it's we're, we're presenting the information from somebody working in the hospital, and you, I understand that some of you are going to do with it what you want to do with it, um, but it's the facts on the ground from the people that are dealing with this. You can turn a blind eye to it. You can bury your head in the sand. You can say, you stick your fingers in your ears, and no, 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 I'm not listening. I'm not listening. Um, but it's going to come home to roost, whether we like it or not. Like she said, she doesn't want more restrictions, but she knows what happens if we don't do something about this situation. We continue to act like toddlers. You're not the boss of me. You can't tell me what to do. It's my rights. Yeah, well, don't get in a car accident, man. That's what it comes down to. We're in a situation where our healthcare system is finite and we're maxing it out. And we know, we know for a fact, based on simple math, that the case numbers we're reporting every day right now, a certain percentage of them are going to end up in hospital, a certain percentage of them are going to end up in the ICU, and we don't have the capacity for them. That's why surgeries are being canceled. Things like that. You can be upset about it, you can ignore it, but it's the truth. Not too long ago, we spoke on the program about WEST, the Western Economic Solutions Task Force. It's a group of leaders from across the prairies focused 
on advancing the issues of the West at the national level. Now, today we're going to have a panel discussion and see how things are going, especially in light of the federal budget that came uh, you know, last month. Joining us now, uh, we have Randy Golden, who is the chair of West and a councillor in the city of Yorkton. We also have Charlie Kirk, who is the mayor of Saskatoon, joining us. And we also have Paul McLaughlin, the president of the Rural Municipalities of Alberta. Thank you all so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, Shay. Um, it's uh, Randy, and uh, very pleased to be here uh, with you this morning and uh, sharing um, some of the successes we've seen uh, with the listeners uh, across Alberta. Okay, Randy, let's start, uh, let's start with you. You are um, president or the chair of West, I guess, uh, a councillor in Yorkton. Um, let's just give our, our listeners a reminder if they missed uh, our earlier discussions about this. What, what is West? How did it come about and what is the mandate? Well, uh, it was created in 2019 uh, when we were hearing from our uh, Western, Western members um, at our FCM uh, board of the real concerns that were happening um, in, our, in our communities. And, and we know as, as leaders in our communities, we're frontline, uh, we're frontline, and our role makes us problem solvers. So FCM created the Western Economic uh, Solutions Task Force. We are focused on solutions and taking this to our federal leaders, all parties. We're uh, definitely nonpartisan. We are speaking of the challenges that we're seeing in our communities. And we really focused on, um, you know, key four, uh, four key areas, getting our resources and products to market, mm-hmm. number two, energy development, the climate policies and regulations. Uh, number three was supporting communities to diversify our economies. And, uh, you know, number four, municipal infrastructure and fiscal sustainability. That's what came out of the summit that we had in February 2020 when we brought our uh, participants of West uh, to Leduc County, um, along with uh, ministers from the federal level, along with members of the Conservative Party of Alberta. We brought forward those four key areas that we have concentrated on since that summit uh, of February. February 2020, before all of the uh, right. pandemic really hit us. Before everything changed, yeah. Um, Charlie Clark, Mayor of Saskatoon and the Vice Chair of West, uh, let me ask you, based on the budget that we saw, did you get the response you were hoping for? Well, hang on, we can't hear Charlie. His, his line is, Charlie, hang on, your, your line is absolutely horrible. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, and I'll ask that same question to Paul. Uh, Paul McLaughlin is president of Rural Municipalities of Alberta. Paul, um, same question. Uh, the things that you put forward and um, made a case for prior to the budget, um, did you get the response you wanted from the feds in that budget? Yeah, you know what, Shay? I, I have to say uh, I like to be heard. It's sure an amazing thing. And, you know, obviously there's there's more pieces to it, but I, I do say that the, the West folks, the United Voice, the solutions focus that Randy said, and really, we did have uh, the, na- the the National Trade Corridors Fund, $1.9 billion. That is speaking directly to the trade conversation mm-hmm. that Randy alluded to. At the same time, 
we've been talking about compensation for farmers, the, the disproportionate burden on farming as it relates to the trade goods. So there's actually an allowance up to about $100 million to provide carbon credits or cash credits back to, to uh, farmers. So, you know, we were heard. I think we were heard, and I think this budget speaks specifically to what Wes brought up. And uh, I do appreciate that. And I'm always never satisfied, but I, we were heard. There's words in there that came right from the West folks that we work with. Excellent. Exciting. Randy, let's, let's pull those apart a little bit more if we can. Um, when we talk about farmers, obviously a huge issue out here on the prairies. The carbon tax was a big part of that, and you saw some progress in helping farmers deal with the increased costs, right? We certainly did, and uh, what we heard loud and clear uh, from our agricultural industry was the burden that it uh, that it brought on some things like um, grain drying, and uh, especially last fall when we had uh, the the moisture that we had, we heard about that from farmers. Um, in my area, we have uh, in my city, we have two uh, canola crush plants. Um, so uh, product comes to our city from a three-hour three radius around. So a huge uh, portion of, of what we do in our city relies on that egg industry. We also heard in that industry, not just uh, from, the, from the grains, but from the barns, the mm-hmm. people that have barns in whatever industry they're participating and working in, uh, the heating of those barns. As, as you know, Shay, this is, not, this is not a hot climate we live Certainly in. And our winter months can get very cold. So um, they were the burden that came to them on the, the uh, carbon tax on those barns. So uh, that that was uh, a, a huge ask that we had. You know, along with um, we can't forget uh, what came out of that budget around uh, new tax incentives. Um, as well as research and development funding for carbon capture, uh, utilization and storage projects. And that's going to begin um, within the next year uh, because that that is huge for our energy sector that we know has has had burdens and implications on it too. Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. Charlie, I think we've got you now. You're lying a little better? Yeah, can you hear me now? Yeah, you're loud and clear now. So let me ask you, um, you know, you you put forward this um, sort of suite of of asks of the federal government. They responded favorably to a lot of them. How does that all fit into everything that West is working on and what you guys are trying to accomplish as as the Western Economic Solutions Task Force? Well, expansion, for example, of the Western Economic Diversification Canada uh, to the creation of a prairie uh, regional development agency, and a BC regional development agency with uh, expansion of about $200 million per year of funding is really critical because communities that uh, are out here in the West, we, we all know, are going through adaptation and transition and, uh, and the need to make sure that we're creating strate- doing strategic investments and creating tech jobs, creating value-added jobs to our resources, being part of the green economy and all of these uh, different initiatives. And mm-hmm. so... We needed to know that the federal government was investing in our region, just like they are in uh, in the um, <clears throat> in the Maritimes or in Quebec or in other areas. And that signal was uh, was one example of that uh, we saw in the federal gov- bu- budget that we had been asking for and we saw delivered on. Uh, let me throw this out to anybody who might want to jump on it. Um, we often see things in budgets or in policy platforms and things like that that actually don't translate into anything tangible down the road. How do we make sure some of the things that you saw and are encouraged by actually come to be policy and are implemented on the prairies? 
Well, Shay, I'm going to start that off, and then I'm going to probably ask um, Paul to also respond. One of the things that we saw in budget that has been something that FCM has been working on for many, many years, um, saw it come to fruition um, uh, through the uh, Conservative government, and that was the uh, uh, gas tax funding that goes directly to municipalities. Uh, We have that. We've had it indexed. Um, and it's covered all party lines because now this is the second time in three years that we're going to see a doubling of that gas tax, which is a huge success um, that FCM has worked on for many, many years. And, and uh, uh, that goes directly to our communities to, uh, to improve lives and to make things happen. So um, the other things that we've seen happening is, um, for instance, uh, we look at uh, what's going to be coming forward on the hydrogen strategy that's happening around the, uh, uh, you know, in the, the heart of Alberta. And I think that, uh, that Paul can probably bring a little more light to that. Paul? Yeah, and you know, I, I, you're exactly right. You know, these are budget line items. This is a, a program. You know how you get these going is you push. Now, okay. that, now that this is in the budget, let's get her done. Let's put, not talk about it. Let's just not wait three, four years. Uh, and I think that the strong-willed folks that we have, uh, the go-getters on West, uh, if there's a line item in there, we're going to move forward on those tasks. So it's really going to be, uh, you know, up to those provincial and municipal leaders to make these real things and not just words in a budget. So uh, I think we're going to we're going to take that and we're going to run with it. Um, I, uh, the corridor, the hydrogen, uh, the you know, the alternate fuels, those conversations, uh, we're having those right now, and we just need to push forward and make these reality. Okay, uh, last one before I go here. Obviously, that's the focus. What else can we expect to hear from West in the coming weeks, months, and years? What's the plan? Well, we're going to continue to push for all the things, as Paul said. Uh, we know that there have been challenges in, in our communities, in our home base. And as we recover uh, from uh, COVID and things that are happening in our community, uh, we know that we that recovery starts um, and ends in our communities. And we're going to be pushing uh, federal government to work with FCM, to work with our leaders, because uh, we know that we're there to find solutions, mm-hmm. there to work hard. Um, and uh, I guess I would ask uh, Charlie or Paul if they have any closing comments. Well, one thing that has been uh, a really remarkable thing about West is people often think there's a, about the rural and urban divide that exists out in right across North America, really. What we have found by sitting together as rural municipal leaders and the leaders of the biggest cities in the West uh, that we found a huge amount of common ground and that the way that we are going to come up with the solutions to address, uh, you know, build a strong future economy is absolutely going to be to find that common ground and build those solutions together and make sure that the provincial and federal governments are listening to what we're seeing at the local level to uh, to shape the solutions based on the, the realities that are happening on our streets and our main streets and our kitchens. Um, because because when we are closest to the ground, you have the, the best understanding of what solutions are going to work, and that's yeah. what we're really bringing forward with Wes. Um, Charlie, Randy, Paul, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Great discussion. Anytime, just let us know. You bet. We'll do this again. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. There you have thank it. You. We have Charlie Clark, the mayor of Saskatoon, and the vice chair of West. Randy Golden, the chair of the Western Economic Solutions Task Force and a counselor in the city of Saskatoon, and Paul McLaughlin, president of Rural Municipalities of Alberta.
what is going on? Our behavior has changed over the course of this pandemic. Apparently, we're paying a lot more attention to what's going on in the sky. 911 operators in the province of Alberta um, are reporting a lot of people calling them much more than usual, reporting aliens or UFOs at least, things like that. Strange phenomenon in the sky. So what's going on? What's happening? Why is this phenomenon occurring? We're going to chat now with Ron Waldron, who is the president of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada in Saskatoon. Ron, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. So what's going on? Are there more things happening in the sky or are we just noticing more things in the sky? Uh there's there's not more things happening in the sky. The sky is what it was it is, but it it is true that people are noticing things in the sky more because they're stuck at home. And sometimes they look at things that uh, to an amateur astronomer is a common everyday occurrence, mm-hmm. like the International Space Station or the Starlink satellites uh, going by uh, that Elon Musk has put up there. And they don't realize what they are, so I suspect that's why there's some 911 calls coming in. Yeah, for guys like you who spend a lot of time looking up at the night sky, you can probably pick these things out pretty quickly. But for people who, you know, this isn't something they're used to doing, everything up there could be a potential mystery, correct? Yeah, except for the International Space Station, everything else up there is a nuisance. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by... It gets in the way of our viewing. Yeah, I mean, like, we have so... We, we did a, a story last week with just the amount of accumulated junk in Earth's low orbit. Is that what you're talking about? Just so yeah. much stuff up there right now? Yeah. Elon Musk has a, a a desire to do a worldwide web so that the web is accessible all over the world, which is a great thing to do. But he's doing it via a grid of well over 3,200 satellites in low orbit. And any chance we have of looking at the sky... And doing any kind of photographer is photography is really being hampered by his efforts in this in this way. Just too much light in the sky is that what it is? No, no. It's the satellites cross the path of your field of view of your camera. Okay. And so what you end up with is your because when you take nighttime photographs, you have to take time exposures. You can't just aim and shoot. Right. And so when you're taking a twenty minute time exposure of the sky, the chance that a satellite is going to cross that path and put a streak in your photograph was very slim, but it isn't anymore. Um, is this? A t- are you seeing um, a surge in interest in people sky watching and getting into astronomy and those sorts of things? Oh, are we ever? Yes, really? I, I think uh, all the people, well, all of the amateur astronomers like myself, and all of the uh, retailers that are um, selling telescopes and astrophotography equipment, they. They've never seen it quite like this. And I think it has to do with people, you know, being stuck at home and having more time. And astronomy, in fairness, is a family-oriented activity that doesn't put you at any risk with uh, during a pandemic. It can be done at home from your backyard, or you can take the family to a dark site uh, outside of town and do your observing there. So it's, it's a good activity during a pandemic. You know, how, how would somebody even get started, though? Like, I mean, like you say, you can do it in the backyard if you have a telescope or things like that. For people who are thinking maybe this is an interesting avenue to go down, what's, how do you get started being a, a sky watcher? Well, the first thing, you, the way to start is with a pair of binoculars. Okay. Uh, never, never start with a telescope because uh, telescopes are a different kettle of fish. It's, if you start with a pair of binoculars and, and a star map or as a star app, is what we would use today, 
um, you can start looking for things in the sky. I mean, first of all, you'll notice the moon and the planets, but then you'll start looking deeper into the Milky Way and into nebulas and galaxies. But then after you've satisfied that thirst with your binoculars, you put the binoculars aside and then you go shopping for a telescope (laughs) because you want to get really close to the moon and you want to get really close to the planets and binoculars aren't going to do that. You know, I mean, I think there's something that hooks you. I remember when I was a kid, we had a neighbor, Mr. Rankin, who had a telescope in his backyard. And we would all be out playing whatever, you know, road hockey, baseball, whatever the case may be. There'd be a bunch of us kids out playing, and he would come out and round us all up after he had found something really cool in his telescope. And we would all trot over and look through. And I know for a lot of us, it's almost a life-changing experience, right? When, like, I remember seeing the rings on Saturn, and it's just, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Something like that can really hook a person. Yeah, I'm... all of myself and uh, all of my colleagues in amateur astronomy, we're the Mr. Rankins of the world. We love <laughs> to do that. <laughs> um, uh, we will find something in our telescope, and if there's some neighbors or something, that we'll invite them over to have a look. And I'm not surprised at your reaction to Saturn, because Saturn is the planet that hooks most people. Is that right? Because when you see the rings of Saturn for the first time, it takes your breath away. It does. And it still does that after I've watched it over 500 times. It still takes my breath away. Um, it's, people have an interesting reaction to Saturn. First of all, they never forget it. But the, their immediate reaction is they will turn to me and they will say, that's not real, is it? <laughs> <laughs> and they almost want to accuse me of putting a slide in the telescope. <laughs> but it, because... I mean, to see it in a picture is one thing, but to see it live through a telescope, it is amazing. So, you know, how did it start for you? Was it something as simple as that? And and, and how far have you taken it now? Like, it's gone beyond a hobby, obviously, but um, it's a passion. What what drives you to keep doing this? Oh, uh, it is a passion. And for me, it's a love of sharing my passion with others. So I started when I was 10 years old. My dad took me outside uh, the city to look at some stars and try to find some constellations. Yeah. And, and I never forgot it. I, you know, that wouldn't work with all kids, but it worked for me. And uh, then uh, I started to buy telescopes. I now own five of them. <laughs> I only have two eyes, but I have five telescopes. And uh, the other thing, when I was teaching, because I'm a retired uh, educator, I would always give a healthy dose of astronomy to my students as well. And so it's just been a lifelong passion for me, and it's uh, kept me on the straight and narrow, I guess. You know, we had a big story here, and I'm sure you were all over it at the time when we had that, I don't know if it's a meteor or a meteorite, I can never remember, not that long ago, that just blazed across the sky over the prairies. Um, When something like that happens, does that really spark uh, an uptake in interest? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, that was Grand Prairie, Alberta, not not too long ago, and um, they, it's a meteorite. Yeah. Although that one, they're pretty sure didn't land, so the, I don't think anybody's out there scouting to try to find it. It uh, they're pretty sure it burned up completely before it hit the ground, but it was very bright. Meteors are very short-lived events, and people, you know, ooh and awe about them, but I don't think it sparks the interest in astronomy. I think what sparks the interest in astronomy is a night under the sky with an amateur astronomer like myself and my colleagues, or just 
maybe you're around a campfire, yeah. you know, in your backyard, and you just happen to notice the sky a little bit more. Hey, Ron, before I let you go, like you're saying, a lot of the things that people are seeing in the sky and wondering what it is, you, you can identify them immediately. You know what they are. So I imagine this is documented someplace. So it, rather than calling 911 to report seeing a UFO, if people see something and they want to find out more, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I don't know that I have an answer for that. <laughs> I, I would agree with you. Don't call 911. Um, I've been watching the sky since I was 10 years old. I'm now 68. I've never seen anything in the sky that I couldn't identify. Hmm. And, I mean, I watch the sky like a hawk. So right. I'm, I'm just saying I'm, I'm a little bit hardened to the idea that there might be something visiting us. I'm not hardened to the idea that there's something else out there. I'm, I'm a firm believer that there's going to be life elsewhere in the universe, but I don't think we're being visited. So I, I don't have an answer for what they should do. <laughs> uh, it's not like I could suggest you call the Alberta UFO Club if right. one exists, but I don't, I don't have those connections. Is it disappointing to you that in 58 years you've never found something you couldn't identify? Isn't part of it the mystery and maybe discovering something? No, no, no. Uh, every time I look through my telescope at a faraway object, I'm very much aware of the vastness of the universe, and I'm very much aware of the possibility of life out there. But the sheer distances alone that are involved yeah. in other life forms getting to us, or even us being able to spot life elsewhere in the universe, the distances are pretty much insurmountable. So I'm not expecting to find life elsewhere in the universe in our in my lifetime or even in my grandchildren's lifetime, but I think we will find evidence that there are other planets out there that might support life like our Earth does yep. so well. Yeah, I mean, statistically speaking, I've been told, Ron, it's almost a certainty just with the number that's up there. Uh, statistically speaking, there's going to be something that lines up pretty closely to what we have going on here. Oh, absolutely, and... I, the way I like to explain it is, is uh, I can't believe for one minute or for even one second that all of that majesty of other galaxies, other nebulas, that it's all put there just for us. There's, it, it's right. absolutely illogical and very self-centered to even think that way. <laughs> so, no, I'm a firm believer in life elsewhere in the universe. Um some listeners with some questions. Uh, is there an adapter for a telescope to a laptop? I'm not sure. Does that mean anything to you? Yeah, there's a lot of people that are doing astronomy via a laptop. You can, you can, the telescopes now are all uh, robotically, can be robotically okay. controlled. And so, yeah, there's adapters. Uh, any retailer that sells telescopes would be able to steer you in the right direction. Okay, and this listener wants to know what power of telescopes needed to see the rings on Saturn. Can you pick one of those up at the Best Buy? Uh, yes, you can. You don't um, need a massive me machine for that, do you? No, you don't. The minimum power to see the rings of Saturn is 40 times. Okay. And But a comfortable power to view it at would be around 100 to 150 times. So any telescope that goes up to 100 to 150 power is ample to see just about anything you want to see. In fact, our best views of the universe are never at high power. Our most memorable views are always at low power. Okay, is it just because it's too much? 
Well, when you magnify the object that you're looking at over 150 times, the atmosphere comes into play and it starts to shimmer and shake and and the resolution goes down. So right. my my stunning view is I never show the, the average public person from the public, I'll never show them anything over 150 power. Okay. Great discussion, Ron. Thank you so much. I could talk about this all day, but I do got to go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, that's uh, Ron Waldron, who is the president of the Royal Astronom- Astronomical Society of Canada. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.